Hello and welcome to the 131st edition of the Guna Podcast. This is your host, Kevin Witcher, and I will explain why I am in this seat as opposed to the usual voice of David Udo shortly. I will also state that at some point in the next 20 minutes, we will be interrupted by the delivery of a Chinese takeaway. <laughs> and we will just put you on pause and uh, nourish ourselves and uh, give myself a heart condition personally, but there we are. Um, we are recording on the first Monday of September, a day after Arsenal's defeat at Stamford Bridge against Chelsea. Oh, it's the first Monday of October. You're so right. It's <laughs> the glory of using a template uh, to do these things. Uh, so first Monday of October, Arsenal just lost to Chelsea, and we are beginning a um, uh, the second of three international breaks we are suffering this autumn. Anyway, as traditional, let's move on by introducing the panel. First up, a familiar voice, although not one you have heard on the panel for a considerable amount of time. That's because he has been hosting the podcast for quite some time now. However, instead of trying to shoehorn his opinions into the questions <laughs> he is asking, he has expressed the desire to try out life on the other side of the table, where he did begin, I will uh, recall, some time ago. Uh, so he's discussing the agenda rather than setting it, and it's a warm welcome in an unfamiliar seat to regular Guna contributor, and the customary host of this podcast, Mr. David Udo. Good evening, all. Next up, a regular panellist and a regular stalker of our players in their leisure hours <laughs> in the environs of NW3. He's the editor of the Hampstead Village Voice, which objects to the likes of Tesco and Costa Coffee moving into the area, but has no problem with very rich Arsenal football players doing exactly the same. Hypocrisy or good taste, you decide. His most recent player encounter was with a man who may actually be taller than him. Something, <laughs> something of a rarity. He will doubtless relay news in the exchange at some later point. But for now, hello once again to Mr. Mustafa Goldstein. Hello. And uh, finally, a first-time voice on the panel. An occasional contributor to the Guna over the years. He has more notably written a number of excellent Arsenal books. His most recent one, Red Letter Days, focuses on 14 key events in the club's history, beginning with the move to Highbury before the First World War and ending with Arsenal's decline after the Invincible season. Amongst those interviewed in his research were Patrick Vieira, Gilberto Silva, Frank McClintock and Perry Groves, and there is even an acknowledgement to my good self amongst the list of names thanked at the start of the book. He'll tell us more about that in due course, but for now, it's a pleasure to have him join us for the first time, Mr John Sperling. Good evening, thank you. Right, gentlemen, well, there is no avoiding the reality. Arsenal lost to Jose Mourinho's Chelsea yesterday. Uh, was it a close-run thing or a golfing class? I will start with our special guest, Mr Sperling. Did anyone actually expect Arsenal to get anything out of Stamford Bridge? I suspect probably not. I think it's better than losing 6-0, which we did last year. But if you do the same thing every game against Chelsea, you're going to get the same result. And unfortunately, if you look at how we set the team out in terms of high line, in terms of defence, 
not enough bite in midfield, which has been an ongoing issue for years, then you're going to get that type of result every time. So it didn't surprise me at all. I was quite relieved, to be honest, that we came out just losing by two goals. And I think uh, the headline in the standard by Des Kelly sums up quite well. Number of shots on target, zero. By Arsenal, number of times Mourinho has lost to Wenger in any competition, zero. Number of people who seriously think Arsenal can win the title this season, zero. <laughs> I cast myself as a glass half full fan, probably overflowing half the time. But if you repeat these mistakes every year, which Arsenal do when we face the big teams, you're going to get the same results. David, what could Arsenal have done differently to actually get a result yesterday? Oh, crikey. Um, uh, take the opposition into consideration beforehand, I would have thought. I mean, something that annoys me about Wenger is that he doesn't care who we're playing. His stance is... Ah, oh, what do you know? <laughs> the takeaway has arrived. Chinese takeaway. We will put you on pause and be back shortly. <laughs> Hello again. So, we've just had our food for the evening, and I can tell you that the Arsenal fish bar is history as far as our takeaway orders are concerned after taking an hour to deliver the uh, order this evening. So uh, different Chinese next time, gentlemen. Uh, I did, uh, before I was so rudely interrupted by the delivery of some very unhealthy uh, food, ask Mr Udo what we could have done different uh, to beat Chelsea yesterday. Set ourselves up um, in, in a way that suited the opposition we were playing. But Wenger seems to have this, well, he seems to have, he has this habit whereby no matter who we're playing, whether it's home, whether it's away, I don't care who we're playing, as long as we play our way, the one that we practice every single day, we'll win because we are the best offensive team in the whole of Europe. He doesn't, doesn't adjust the team, doesn't adjust the formation, lines up the same way every single game. But you saw Chelsea yesterday, they were very rigid. You know, they purposely played uh, Matic next to Fabregas, knowing that if Arsenal do surge forward, that and our back four will withhold them. When um, they, they were 1-0 up, uh, and, uh, and, you know, we were pressuring them, um, Sherl went off, was replaced by um, John Obi Mikel, you know, gave them even more defensive stuff. You know, they adapt it depending on how the game's going. Venga, he's just rigid, he only plays one way. Um, he, okay, he may have a desperation substitution with 10 minutes to go, but before that, he knows how the first hour, hour and 20 minutes of the game's going to go. So, yeah, we need to start adapting based on who we're playing and where we're playing. To play the devil's advocates, didn't Barcelona enjoy considerable success with a very similar philosophy a few years ago? Uh, yeah, but that, that was then they essentially revolutionised football as they were the one of the first uh, three or four teams who introduced what we now know as the very common four-two-three-one tiki-taka um, uh, formation. So people were getting used to that, but we're still replicating that. Even though Barcelona, the Spanish national team, uh, have abandoned that because, as we saw in the World Cup, if you line up the right way as Germany did, uh, you'll hammer team climb up. And also, they've got players like Lionel Messi, not. Um no disrespect to Jack, but his first touch yesterday when he was through, and oh. it did come off, and it just it just lost it. You know that that could, you know, had that have been Jack on form or a world class player, uh, that's in the back of the net yesterday. Um, you know, I think player for player, you can't you have to have the players to play that sort of game and play against a game a team like Chelsea and actually beat them. Mm. And at the moment, I don't think we have. Did you have any sense of optimism before the game? Well, when, when Wenger was having a go at the fourth official for about the seventh time, I started agreeing with him and, and thinking to myself, yes, it is the fourth official's fault. It's you know, <laughs> clearly nothing to do with Ozil um, not sort of even turning up or 
Santi Cazorla <laughs> being one foot tall and not being able to chase back and losing possession every time where he's anywhere near our own area. Uh, or, or, sorry, anywhere near their own their area. And, and, and Sanchez also, frankly, not really um, shining for me enough for all his enthusiasm. Um, still hanging on to it, not just putting that pass in, that simple pass. Uh, or silly little schoolboy errors all round, you know, uh, unfortunately yesterday for me. Um, and Chelsea, the sort of team, and that's what they did. They hustled us off the ball. They, they did everything right. And we tried to show them individually what a good player I am and I can take you on rather than just quickly pass it to someone. Or our first touch let us down. The second goal was Sanchez. You know, he got the ball and just sort of lost it, um, you know, uh, in, in an attacking position. And we, we t turn attack into defence far too often. And we're, not, we're just not economical with the ball. I think the disappointing thing yesterday was that no one, well, I'm sure they were perhaps, but no one I don't think was happier than me when we won the FA Cup at Wembley in May. And he hoped. I was, I was actually. <laughs> and I think everyone says, to outdo each other on that, don't they? <laughs> yeah. But I was so, so happy. And I thought over the summer that something might change. Not necessarily player-wise, but tactics-wise. And I think the disappointing thing yesterday is that nothing's changed. If you look at the transfers in the summer, it looked like there was going to be a revolution of sorts. But then if you look at it kind of objectively, you've replaced Sanya with Debushi, Vermeilen with Chambers, and Sanchez is an upgrade. But they needed more than that. They needed at least another striker on top of Welbeck. And this midfield defensive thing, I mean, anyone who's read any of my stuff in the Goon, I've gone on about for years, that you need a Gilberto or a Vieira or a Story or a Rocastle or Thomas screening the back four, not exposing them. You need two players almost like that. Well, Story would probably only play about four games because <laughs> he he's set off every couple of weeks. Mm. He'd adapt. He'd adapt. <laughs> He'd adapt, but that, that isn't there. And every, the, the secret of every Arsenal successful Arsenal side is that they have a strong, powerful midfield, and we don't have it. There's no spine. Yeah. And there's no. not. And I hate to agree with Joey Barton um, on anything at all, ever. But he's right. There's no spine in yeah. the Arsenal side at the moment. It's all a lot of uh, very clever, very skillful little players who can ticky tacky about. But you've got to have that Vieira story. Someone who's there saying bossing the, the defensive midfield. Yeah. Um, and, and all the successful Arsenal teams that they've been in the past have had that. But did, do you not think that um, Arsenal actually battled and competed to a much higher level than they did in March when they were played off the field? I thought they did in fairness. I, th I thought the game in midfield, I, I thought that was, that, that was actually really, really quite good to watch in the sense that our midfielders, they were very resilient. You know, they shall not pass generally. And uh, yeah, most of the game was sort of played in, in, in the, the central 60%. However... When we got past their defensive six, um, you know, we, we shot ourselves and didn't know what was going to happen. The only relative chance we really had was Wilshire and his first touch slash back pass to uh, to Czech. Um, but there, in they were just you know more clinical when they got past us and they they drew the tenth penalty that Koscielny's conceded in the last two seasons and a bit. Um, and yeah, yeah, we just faulted ourselves. But the midfield, um, I, I thought that, that they were quite resilient and they did as best they could. It was but tighter. It was yeah, tighter it was, than I, last year. I, I, it was tighter and there, it was, <coughs> there was progress on last year, certainly. But uh, although we had 11 men on the pitch for the whole game, which, which was also arguably we might not, because Selny could easily have been sent off because he was the last man there, wasn't he? Yeah. But um, mind you, they could have had one sent off too. But uh, I, I just don't think that. Um, I, I, I think we. They still, when Azard ran through, it was just 
it was like a, a knife through butter. It was, you know, no one really. Cazorla was somewhere in the mix there, and there were other. There was someone else there who wasn't putting a challenge. Well, in cha Chambers on. couldn't. The yeah. second player he went past was mm. Chambers already right. on a yellow. Was that on the edge of the box? It was about three yards outside, but yeah, more yeah. to the point, he would have probably been sent off. Yeah, he would have been if he'd he, have fouled him. You know. Yes, but it was it's still it was too easy for him to get get through us there. Um, yes. And and the point the, the real point being once again, if you had a Vieira or you had a Petit or you had a, a story or, or, or some kind of even strong... if Grimaldi was good at a cheeky foul when it has to be made. Well, that's yeah. that's the one thing which um, yeah, the I'd like stuff. I'd like to ask: Can we actually learn? from Chelsea's fouling yesterday because cynical as it was um, it was effective do you think that's something which Arsenal don't have enough of in their game? Absolutely, it's something we should do but I can guarantee we will not because Wenger is right Wenger is always right he's got no one questioning at the club he's had 18 years of this and uh, once David Dean left and was replaced by Keith Edelman he's had too much power and he's, he's been surrounded by Bora Primorac for 18 years who's done nothing but agree with him well, well I think there's been a bit more there has been a bit more physical actually from the players uh, I think uh, uh, not yesterday so much but there's been a, a few more sliding tackles from Ramsey and, and Wilshire mm -hmm. and people and they have been getting you know nearly sent off a few times um so there has been a bit more of that, but to be honest with you, I don't want more of that. I, I, I think the problem is, if we had a couple of stronger players in front of the back four, mm. the back four wouldn't, wouldn't, or we wouldn't be left with Koscielny desperately lunging forward and giving away a penalty. You can blame Koscielny and Mertesacker for you know, uh, mistakes that happen, but by the time it's there already, you know, if they're under that much pressure, it's going to happen. It's like blaming the goalkeeper. You, know, you can't. Once it's, you know, there's a point where... The problem is that we've got too many of these players that we know who the suspects are who give the ball away needlessly in the, in the final third of the pitch and, and they give it away and then another thing we don't do, which Chelsea did yesterday, was break quickly. Even Tottenham break quickly. We don't break, we break so slowly out of defence. You know, whenever we get a chance to, and other teams, they have a run at us. You know, and it's like, oh, we're chasing back at them. Well, we're not doing that. We, we seem to trot up the pitch and pass sideways and round and round the penalty area in a sort of D shape and, and until we lose it too often. There's a lack of balance, a lack of balance in the team. And I think we've known that for, for a long time. Yep. <laughs> OK, well, I mean, uh, Mesut Ozil came in for plenty of stick uh, yesterday and, and in previous games. Uh, he hasn't had too many outstanding performances this season. Um, do you think it would make a difference if he was played uh, centrally um, as his nominated position and uh, or have we bought a pup? I think with Ozil he wants to play as a number 10 in the middle he said that himself uh, and he looks better when he plays there you know but having said that I mean in the German World Cup winning team he was playing on the right hand side and cutting inside uh, however, maybe surrounded with better players, maybe they've got a better coach in Yogi Love, who's who's got them playing exactly the right way. But and within within the Arsenal team, I mean, he looks at the players around him. And he's thinking, so hang on, this Spanish international reserve who nobody else wanted to buy, who's ended up at Arsenal, he gets to play as the number ten, and me, the World Cup winner, who cost you a club record fee of fifty million euros, you're going to throw me out on the right and want me to chase back and support the right back? Yeah, uh, yeah all right. Mm. You know, if we get a 50 million euro bid from Zenit St. Petersburg uh, in the summer, I think Mesut will go. 
Um, because he's he's a number ten, he can be the superstar there. But here, Wenger will always play him on the right, and that pisses him off. But when he when he arrived, he was hyped as the new Burkamp, different number, but same kind of guile, same kind of ability to carve out chances for other players. And he's not really been given a chance to do that, mm. at least not an extended run. The trouble is, you know, you've got to give. You had to give him time to settle in. He had an injury in in the new year. I, I was thinking this would be the season that he would show whether he could settle in. But it's not going to happen if, like you say, David, he's not really being played in the position he wants to play. He's never going to settle. Someone like him needs to feel at home, like Bergkamp did. He needs things to be right around him for him to settle. Yeah. Mm. And that way you'll see the best out of him. Probably he felt comfortable like that in Madrid because you look around and see Cristiano Ronaldo, mm. Benzema, and he looks around here thinking this just isn't quite right. Well, so it seems like we've got, if you've got Wilshire, um, and Cazorla and, and Ramsey is out now at the moment anyway and they, they are running Wilshire seems to make these runs through the middle but if, if you, you do get the feeling if Ozil was more central he'd be able to thread a ball through here and there um, a little more than he is he's sort of hiding on the wing mm. a lot and what, I, 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 I just don't understand what Wenger's doing with him um, I I he's, doing, he's doing exactly the same as what he did with Andre Arshavin who was a brilliant number 10 at St Petersburg he was the outstanding player in a European football who everyone was supposed to be after we got him uh, we stuck him um, uh, you know, in the number 10 role and he looked absolutely great scoring those four goals at Anfield then the next season Wenger said you did so well fuck off on the wing so what happens to a player like Ozil if he has a quiet word with Jack Wilshere or something come on, or on the pitch and says Come on, let's just swap positions for a bit. I'm going, I'm going central. Fuck Wenger. What's he going to do? Run on the pitch? Uh, at that point, if you disobey the instructions that the manager with far too much power has given you, you will be substituted. Uh, well, that, uh, even if you give, would you reckon you'd have enough time to um, score a couple of goals and maybe make him change his mind? Uh, I wouldn't want to get into a mental arm wrestle with Arsene Wenger because he, yeah, he, he, he's got too much power. I think uh, what Ozil does, he does drift. Um, but what is noticeable is when he is actually playing behind the striker, his heat map will show he is more in the centre than anywhere else. Mm. When he nominally starts on the left wing, he actually ends up spending more time on the right wing, mm. which is just, there, there seems to be a policy of the player switching a lot um, mm. on the flanks. Well, he probably does that so that he gets more time in the centre at some well, point. because he's got to wander across between the two, I know. Well, he's um, hoping something will happen while he's in the middle on his way. Mm. <laughs> All right, I mean... Is is Welbeck um, an upgrade on Olivier Giroud? And uh, if so, why do we seem to be a lesser team than last season? I think with with Welbeck, he's certainly more direct. He's certainly got more pace than Giroud. Always though, with Welbeck, you can you question his finishing. Now, okay, he scored four goals so far, a hat-trick last week, and he got a goal against Villa as well. But then at the very top level, he fluffed the chance against in Dortmund, and he hit the post against City. And unfortunately, at the very highest level, it's those chances that make or break you as a top striker, and make or break you as, as a top side, really. And I'd, no one would be happier than me if Welbeck um, succeeds. And I think we've just got to give him time. I'm hoping that you know, with with an extended run in the team, which he will get unless he gets injured, of course, um, then you know he the confidence will thrive. But I mean, my experience of watching top Arsenal strikers down the years is you either have it or you don't. Wenger said he will turn him into a top player. I'm 
question wonder how he's going to do that I'd actually quite like to know I quite I think he's actually very refreshing what I've seen of him yeah uh, he's only just started yeah. so he's not had a, a, a long enough run to make a big judgement but what I can see his first touch is good he controls the ball yeah. really well yeah. he passes it plays with the team really well yeah. interacts really well and I mean against Galatasaray Giroud wouldn't have scored one or two of those goals no. you know, Giroud there's one he would have kicked against the keeper which Welbeck deftly chipped over yeah. mm -hmm. um, so I Actually, I think given enough chance, I think Welbeck and some support, because if it's just Welbeck again on his own up there, mm. you know, can we have someone for him to play off? You know, um, a, another striker that is. You know, what's Podolski's doing sitting on the bench? You know, call me old fashioned. Do, do we always have to play that, that, that format with just one striker on his own? Um, surely, you know, usually you only did that in Champions League games against Barcelona when you know you played. Robin van Persie on his own and or, or Bentner wasn't it and, and sort of def try and defend your way out of it but when you're going out to win a game why not just have two strikers and, and remember against Wigan at Wembley you know um, at, you know suddenly converted to the 4-4-2 we were playing really we suddenly looked much more attacking mm. and even those last 10 minutes against Chelsea but Podolski was suddenly there was all it was more in their area apart from you know uh, when they broke broke away um, which they did very quickly um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think, well, to answer the question, I, I like Welbeck mm. and I think he's really refreshing and I, I do hope that he'll go from strength to strength. I think he is quite strong physically as well, which he showed against him. Oh, you see the guy topless. I mean, he's, he's the, him and Sanchez, I'd like to see him have an arm wrestle. That's probably going to be live on Channel 5. Oh, I wasn't going into sort of <laughs> nudism there, David. No, 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 that's it was more mean. about It was more about um, his, his ability to shrug off Galatasaray players. Yeah, because the guy is bigger, he's, he's well built. Yeah, but he didn't have to take his shirt off. You get a yellow card for that. <laughs> he's also a wholehearted player, and he seems to have fitted fit in very quickly, very well with his teammates. He's very yeah. popular, and that's what you want: yeah. enthusiasm and enjoyment, yeah. which you sometimes think isn't always present in the Arsenal team when you need it to be. Mm. But he's the first centre forward I've seen at our place in about seven years who loses the ball on the edge of the opposition's box and will chase all the way to the edge of his own box to win it back. Yeah. The last person I saw that ended up at Barcelona and now at New York Red Bulls and Christ, I'd kill for a new version of him. Yeah. Okay. Um, in between playing uh, Spurs and uh, Chelsea, two generally disappointing displays, uh, obviously we, we thumped Galatasaray 4-1. Uh, what went right on the night and why was the display so much better than the games either side? I think that the, ga the game against Spurs was played in second gear. It was a very, very dull game. And it's very, very odd for us to play Spurs and have a very, very dull game because let's face it, it's one of those few games where the 60,000 people in the ground are absolutely crazy and really, really mad for it. And because it was a half five kickoff, they've been out drinking all day. Been in the pub. We wanted everything. But I mean, the, the game just didn't get started. But I mean, against Galatasaray, we came out in, in, in fifth gear straight away. Thankfully, against a very, very poor side. Um, so poor they can't find room for Emmanuel and Bouet in their 25-man Champions League squad. Um, and we just got the first goal, and uh, you saw Mislera, the goalkeeper, the arms came in the air as if to say, oh, well, here it comes. It's a Bouet at Galatasaray. Yeah, well, he's not in their Champions League squad. Ah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we, we came out an awful lot quicker. And um, I would have thought Wenger would learn something from that. But, you know... Chelsea are a far better team but we played really well really really quickly against a very very poor side yeah I mean it's a, it's a great chance for Welbeck really to find his feet against Galatasaray and I Galatasaray gave Arsenal a lot of time to, to play they gave him a lot of space and what you saw is you saw Wenger's kind of plan A because he has only got a plan A work brilliantly because you know Arsenal could 
um, uh, destroy them with pace, directness, and the clever little tippy-tapper passing, which works well against certain teams, like it did against Villa, where you can blitz them quite quickly. Mm. Um, and it worked well against Galatasaray. But the problem is, obviously, the crux of it is, will it work against Dortmund at home now, against well, a much better team who are much better set out? Well, it'll work against teams we haven't played for a very long time, like Galatasaray, who aren't that good mm. um, pretty much every time, eventually. Although I did get the feeling after a few minutes sitting next to David there, you know, uh, until we scored, I, I wasn't, you know, the jury was out as to how that game was going to go. And then, of course, the, you know, the floodgates opened. But um, against the Chelsea's and the Dortmunds, um, the thing is, they're on to us. They're on to our plan, eh? Right, mm. they all you know. Even Tottenham were on. Everyone to it. is. You know, mm. Tottenham are fucking. Leicester are on to it, right? Everyone's on to it. And unless you're actually quite a poor team like like Palace and Villa, which you know they are, they're poor teams, and and you know um, we can beat them. Then we're going we're going to come unstuck and get a lot of draws uh, or lose the odd one. How do you how do you feel about the prospects of making the top four this season? Do you think it's uh, likely? Uh, uh, you know, at the beginning of the season, I was talking about being second or third, and now I'm not so sure. Mm. Uh, I, I, I seriously think we, we do. We need another striker, like proper striker. We need an Ian Wright, that is, you know, uh, at, at, or Suarez, or someone along those lines. And we need uh, a big, strong Vieira-esque type back four person. Or I would have even settled certainly for a Fabregas or someone to who played for Chelsea in that position really well yesterday. I mean, not so much the muscle, but certainly certainly played in the, in the def defensive back four. Um, but we, we still need an upgrade, I think, to, we're two players short of, of, of challenging for first place. And then we're, you know, in the current era, we're risking, there are a lot of good teams at the moment out there, more than there used to be. It used to just be Man United and us for a period, you know, or just Chelsea and Man United or just... And now you've got City, you know, um, and uh, Man United uh, will come back, I think. They've got enough class in their squad, and Van Gaal can't be a complete mug, can he? Uh, well, they've been so yeah. bad all season, they've got more points than we have. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they're above us now, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so are West I mean, Ham and so are Spurs. I, mean, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think fourth place would be, again, based on what I've seen this season, a good achievement for Arsenal, because Chelsea and Manchester City, I think, will be the top two. I don't know what, in what order, I think. Probably based on his day, Chelsea. Um, I think Manchester United are starting or start September on the front foot after those signings. They've they've got enough to, to break back into the top four. So again, mm. our challenge is really in Liverpool and Tottenham. Um, and time will tell if we've got enough to 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 get ahead of them. I think what would change things. I don't know if it, this is going to happen. Or this has been rumoured for a long time. It would be if Wenger breaks with tradition and actually splashes out in the January transfer window for a Kadira. I know it's been mentioned today, but Arsenal traditionally are stronger, stronger after Christmas, and that could change the complexion of things. But even he must know privately that that midfield isn't up to it. No. And that's, that has to change before they can even think of going beyond mm. fourth place. And as I say, I think they'll do well to get fourth this year, but it, I think they... I think they probably should. I don't want to pick on individual players, and I, 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 I you know, I think Cazorla's a good cup-winning player, but for mm. a, uh, I, I just don't think he's um, enough um, for what we want in that position. And he's starting with Cazorla nearly every game, and I think that I'm sorry, but he just doesn't have the physical presence and the speed, and he does turn 
attack into defence far too often for my liking. He's not economical enough with the ball. And yes, he, you know, I love him for the fact he saved our cup final. Uh, I love him for various things. I oh, will always love him. We'll that. always love him, but I think he should play him in cups. You know, uh, have him on the bench, play him, bring him on as a. That's fine, but he's not. He's not a starter for me, uh, and uh, certainly not against teams like Chelsea. Well, once Walcott is fit, um, it will be interesting to see who he does select. Oh, when will Walcott be fit? Well, he's started training again. So I'm he guessing the first team this week or next week during the international. Break. I'd say we might see a sub appearance in two or three weeks' time. Okay, well, let's hope uh, Wally Wally's on fire then. Yeah, okay. I mean, John, you, you talk about Wenger uh, realizing that the midfield isn't up to it. I, well, I said I hope he realizes right. in his in his private thoughts okay. that Arsenal, I'm sure, must have regularly. All right, fair enough. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's. Uh, take a look at uh, one aspect of both the Galatasaray and the Chelsea matches, which is the subject of flares, rather than flair on the field. Uh, obviously Galatasaray fans got flares into the um, stadium and threw them on the pitch. Arsenal fans had flares at Stamford Bridge, uh, let them off outside. And um, do we uh, think that uh, there are going to be Serious implications for supporters as a consequence. Firstly, you were, you were sat next to me during the Galatasaray game, and when the flares started to go off in their end, you weren't particularly complimentary towards the Galatasaray fans, I remember. No, I wasn't. I think it's ridiculous to bring fireworks, flares, or any form of firearms into a, into a, you know, a thing like that lands on your head. It could catch fire. It's obviously a dangerous thing. It's ridiculous to start messing around with them at football matches. But Arsenal, are the, what, Arsenal themselves will face sanctions. Well, then, you know, so, but, but how do we, so these flares at Stamford Bridge were outside the ground. Yes. So why the hell did they stop the game for 20 minutes because of that? What, why should something like that outside the ground affect the kick-off of a game? I mean, that I don't understand. Well, I mean, if you think about the Hillsborough tragedy, it was one of the problems was a lot of fans couldn't get in to see the kickoff and started trying to force the issue. Right. Um, so did, it, did security at Stamford Bridge find these things, or what happened exactly? Well, I am speculating now, but I, my guess is that the searching at Stamford Bridge is fairly thorough anyway. Yeah. My guess is the people who had flares on them uh, realised they were not going to get them in. So they thought, what the hell, let's let them off here. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I'm here as the host, not to give an opinion, but I think it will have implications for Arsenal fans when they travel in future. Um, I think security might be tighter. I think less fans will get in for kickoff. Just get there 20 minutes earlier and uh, don't bring your flares with you. Mm. So what, what happened to Cardiff City when their, their fans came to Highbury? I think last year we were there in the FA Cup and they set fire to half of Blackstock Road. I mean, were, were the club and the fans punished? I'm not causing controversy. I'm generally wondering out of interest. Well, if it wasn't directly outside the stadium, I'd guess um, <coughs> it was a police rather than FA matter. Oh, OK. okay. So... Um, well, I wonder if it would just be a two or three week fad for Arsenal fans in the international break. Or I think listen, there must be a lot of Galatasaray stroke Arsenal fans living around Green Lanes who are just yeah. sitting at the same cafe and had a few flares left over. You know, yeah. I mean, there's probably 
people with the, you know, uh, and, and one or two just let, I mean, we're probably talking about one bloke with a flare, aren't we? I mean, we're not talking, there wasn't a whole ambush of Arsenal fans with flares outside Stamford Bridge. I find that First time offence, very boring fans. <coughs> the only fight I've seen is because we ran out of cream cheese and salmon bagels <laughs> at home game once. And, well, yeah. well, one of the slaps I saw nearly hit someone else. And the crazy. thing is, you go to the Stadio Lutz, I went there when Arsenal won the European Cup in 91 or 92, was it? And they let the flares in. It's stunning, it's brilliant. And then they come over your way, and it's <laughs> scary stuff because yeah. everyone stampedes out of the way of it, yeah. and there's, there's, there's no place for it in football, really. No, no. In grounds, and it is dangerous. It might look stunning, but it's it is dangerous. I don't think we'll see flares again. I think no. we could, I personally next in the CCTV heavy um, world uh, that we're in in the 21st century, <laughs> they use that Stamford Bridge. Find the idiot who set fire to the flare, identify him, take his season ticket away. Done. Yeah. Okay. Um, one thing that's um, come to my attention uh, in the last couple of days, Spurs have gained a compulsory purchase order on a sheet metal works behind the Paxton End so they can build their new stadium. There is now a petition to ask the government to reconsider. Should we be signing it? No, it's none of our business. I don't want to get involved with Tottenham business. Why the, why the hell would we want to get involved? Let, do, let them do what they want to do. They're fucking Tottenham. Who cares? <laughs> okay. Didn't we have that with um, the, the Tottenham supporting people just uh, on Drayton Park? Like uh, Newtons or Newtons? Lawson's. That was it, Lawson's. Didn't, didn't we have the same thing? We ended up getting a CPO against them. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, uh, yeah, well, yeah, you can tell what I'm thinking. <laughs> do, we, do we think that um, Tottenham in the new stadium will catch up with uh, the current bigger teams due to increased resources and become a genuine top four contender? Interesting question. I've debated that with my Tottenham friends. I have got a few of them quite a bit. I mean, what's still slightly unclear is exactly how the stadium's going to be funded. And when we saw with us, it's derailed us for the best part of a decade, perhaps even, even more. And yet we always managed to get, or we were in the Champions League, we retained our Champions League spot year on year. Tottenham haven't got that spot yet. And I wonder for them if their boat has sailed and if whether they upgrade or not is really, really plays into it. Because when Arsenal planned on going to uh, the Emirates, you know, it, it was a different kind of financial setup. You know, Abramovich wasn't around, Man City didn't have their backers. You know, since then, United have expanded Old Trafford massively. Liverpool are upgrading Anfield. City have moved to a new stadium for free. It's kind of like they're just following the Joneses rather than breaking the mould. Mm. But obviously, with that increased revenue and commercial merchandising, perhaps they could become a threat. But I think morale-wise, yeah, I just morale-wise, they'll be better off be than we were because we went from a beautiful, lovely home called Highbury to. A, you know, a bit of a soulless kind of a new stadium, and they're going from a complete fucking shithole to something that can only be better. So they're <laughs> obviously going to feel a bit better about it all round, aren't they? <laughs> I have a I feeling. A smile off everyone. I have a feeling the uh, Tottenham fans may beg to differ. Wait, Tottenham! Wait, Tottenham! Wait, Tottenham! Come on, call yourself Arsenal fans. <laughs> All I know is there's a brilliant article in the current issue of the Gooner by David Alder or something on this, and 
Um, look, I mean, if if the top four were already miles and miles away, I mean, then Spurs have got a massive stadium and they're going to have to sell tickets for a fiver just to let people in, as West Ham will end up doing at the Olympic mm. Stadium, would have thought. But as we're, sadly, dropping into the uh, the same standard as, as Spurs based on how we've started this season, I mean, OK, Chelsea, Man City are going to finish 1-2 every year, probably Man, Man United in third. If Spurs somehow end up with a, a 58,000 capacity stadium, and they're, but their team is at the same standard... Well, uh, no, it's about 58,000. Yeah, which think. is only just below Arsenal. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, they've got yeah. the same amount, as, uh, same amount of money of, as we've got coming in every fortnight, but their teams reach the same well, standard. Do you think that many Tottenham fans will... They're going to have two years at Milton Keynes or somewhere, aren't they? So they'll well, all have left Tottenham by then, surely. I mean... Well, <laughs> I'm worried because our team isn't that good, essentially. If we're, if, you know... If we were where Man City and Chelsea are in terms of quality at the moment, I'd wish Spurs luck. No, we really are would. still better than Tottenham. We are still, even though we drew with them at home, which was bad, we were still, to be honest with you, they were there for the taking and we fucked it up. No, well, we didn't take them then. In that no, case, you know, no. I'm, I'm not looking forward to the White Hart Lane game. But I think that every year Tottenham aren't in the Champions League and they're not in their new stadium. They're getting further and further behind because of the new TV revenues and everything else. I think, uh, I don't know, I'd be surprised if they... Uh, if they pulled out of Arsenal's shadow anytime soon I hope so anyway mm. ok um, Stan Kroenke um, it's the yeah, annual accounts recently released um, show that he took £3 million out of the club last season for advisory services is this a dividend by any other name can we expect to see more such payments and how does this tally with the concept of custodianship David? Yes, it's a dividend in disguise. Of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, you look at, you look at the, the comments from, from Kroenke when, um, uh, when he actually started to... Well, well, no, he was comparing us to how um, uh, Fenway Sports Group were looking after Liverpool and um, how, you know, and uh, the way that the, uh, the Glazer family were behaving when the, they put all of Tampa Bay Buccaneers' debt onto Manchester United in the sense that this is a bigger commercial entity so they can just pay off this group's um, debts themselves through them. And uh, crikey, the Glazer family and all their separate entities, they've been paid con consultancy fees every single year and Cronky's uh, seen that, wants to copy it, he is copying it. What can we do to protest? Well, the people who, who helped pay that £3 million in the 3% um, the increase in our season ticket prices at the end of next season, how about we forfeit our season tickets uh, at the end of this season? Nobody will. As long as they sell the 48,000 season tickets, or however many it is, every single year, then we're proving that what they're doing is acceptable. Therefore, there's nothing for them to worry about. I hate it, but that's the so way business to works. Be, to be honest with you, I wouldn't mind this sort of thing you know look we're living in like, like it or not a capitalist um society right it's uh, it's not it's we're not you know we're, we're a long way from the, the days of uh you know, there's no there's no arsenal board union or anything you know we're not you know it's not unfortunately that's what it is right but i wouldn't mind if on the pitch we are looking dangerous and we're looking like we're up there then yeah then, then bonuses whatever dividends don't care right as long as on the pitch we are giving teams like Chelsea, Man City and Man United a game, then I'm happy for people to take their little bit of mafia money off the side. So what? You know, we've all watched Goodfellas, we've all fantasised about having a little briefcase full of cash. Great, so what? Whatever. But if the team aren't performing well and the players aren't, in fact, for that matter, I'm more angry with Ozil with however much money he's earning and he's walking up and down not looking like he really wants to be there. Um, 
that pisses me off as much as Cronky um, taking a big chunk of cash off fast season ticket money. That's right. I mean, bo- bonuses for for no success is doesn't sit well with anybody, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And that's more or less what we've got, isn't it? But what is success now in football? Arsenal need to, for me to get not top four. Top four is not good enough. Right. No, the, the point is that for Cronky, he has a different business model in terms of what he considers success. Success for Arsenal fans, success for Cronky is probably two different things. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're used to an Arsenal fans of our generation, an Arsenal that's around to win things, not just finish, not just finish top four. I'm not saying you've got to win every year because that's impossible, but you can at least aim to win something every year, and that hasn't been the case. So success for Arsenal fans is the thought that season on season Arsenal will get better. Success seems for the club a lot of the time is that yeah the the, the bottom lines hit top four. Look at his US sports franchises, the St Louis Rams. I mean, I don't think in my lifetime they've they've ever won a, a Super Bowl. I'll happily be corrected if I'm wrong. But I, I know that they sell out their ground in Missouri every single fortnight. Therefore, the job's done, right? You know. Mm. And look at uh, the Colorado Rapids. I mean, has anyone ever heard of them? No. But they sell enough tickets. They operate as a business. Therefore, they are successful. It's a very very cynical way of looking at it. But these are blatantly the only needs of the Cronky family, the, the KSE. Therefore, you know, there's nothing for them to worry Would, about. If if Usmanov somehow, if there was a shift in power and Usmanov could get enough. A, 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 you know, get a bit more of a foot in the door. I, I don't know why, but he strikes me as someone who somehow, maybe because of his a, a, a allegiance with um, David Dean and Red and White Holdings, and in fact it's called that, that whole thing. Surely, if, if, is there a chance ever of Cronky just sort of calling it a day and being bought out and leaving? Um, uh, so that, because clearly, if you make lots of money, that's fine. But then if you do well on the pitch as well, surely that's even better. I mean, I can't see Cronky objecting to the team winning the league and him making money. Yeah, but there's not that much prize money in it, I suppose. You know, I mean, does anyone actually, do any of us know what the prize yeah, but he's money He's got an ego. He wants to be with a team that's won something. I mean, his ego was. I, so I repeat what I said about the St. Louis Rams and the Colorado mm. Avalanche, Colorado, Rap- Colorado Rapids. They don't win anything, they just sell the tickets. They yeah. make the money. Yeah, no, but he wouldn't them. object if they did. But Cronky himself has said, isn't he, that sport isn't all about winning. I mean, he said that himself. And that's probably his. His, very his, his comment on the bottom line, really. But I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I'm going to say that last year they spent 40 million plus on Urzel. This summer they spent 30 million on Sanchez. If they do that year on year, summer on summer, in two or three years, in the era of financial fair play, with my glass half full here, Arsenal could actually match Chelsea and Man City on the pitch because. I think I'm right in saying I've got the figures in front of me here that you know Arsenal is not due to lack of money anymore in the Arsenal's forward line 93.4 million they, are, they highlight Chelsea's forward line 91 it's not so much money spent it's how you organise the players on the pitch and what type of players mm-hmm. are bought and there's no reason I don't think w- w- why in the next couple of transfer windows there'd have to be a sea change in terms of the type of midfielders they buy and another attacker but in two or three, it is possible that Arsenal could have a title-winning side. And that's how I wake up every day looking ahead to that. Yeah, it could be. I think that, <laughs> that, that, that only accentuates um, Arsenal's behaviour in the transfer market in the sense that summer 2013, did, it's like that character from the Fast show. Hello, dear. Did you get uh, that shopping you wanted? <laughs> Even better than that, yeah. I didn't get a centre-forward. I got a creative midfielder from Real Madrid who they really wanted to get rid of. 
Okay, did you get the defensive midfielder we needed? Even better than that, I got another right winger <laughs> who's going to get dropped when Walcott's fit again. Okay, that's fine. And, and the problem is that Arsenal have been so reactive in the transfer market. I mean, last summer, would they have signed Ozil had we had not had that debacle on the first game of the season against Villa? Would we have signed Welbeck had Giroud not got injured? Probably not in both cases. And Arsenal are so reactive and they've... That has to change. Now, as I say, I've just been optimistic, hoping that it will. Whether or not it will or not, who knows? Well, it, it does demand um, a strategic approach to oh, the playing yeah. staff, which um, ties in a little bit with the director of football idea, which uh, Manchester City have and Tottenham have. And uh, you could argue that Tottenham haven't bought well, but uh, I suppose you could argue they've at least tried us to... Mm address issues in some kind of prepared fashion um, and it might, might come good for them under I think we, 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 we certainly we, we've missed Mr Dean haven't we mm, um, yeah. uh, as, uh, as far as transfer is concerned um, I mean that's the one thing in the Tottenham game last week it wasn't a great game but Tottenham for once were well organised at Arsenal very much so when was the last time you could have said that about Tottenham and that's the worry 1993 about a week before the <laughs> FA Cup final John Hendry scored on the goals <laughs> indeed <laughs> right, well one of the reasons we've got John along is because he has produced a new book, uh, Red Letter Days is yeah. the title. Mm -hmm. um, now we've actually got a question specifically for you John, yeah. sent in from Twitter, right? Um, which the other guys can uh, chip in with as well. Um, you say in the new book that the FA Cup win uh, last season could either be a case of a false door, mm -hmm. as in 1979, yeah. or a the beginning of a resurgent Arsenal, yeah. as in 1998. Was that back in July? Back <laughs> you did, you did. Um, well, plastic spam. I was optimistic. I was on holiday. It was summer. <laughs> That's right. His Twitter handle is plastic spam, and he oh. he would like to know which of these two scenarios the panel think is more likely. False Dawn or Resurgent Arsenal? You go first, John. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the book, I do. I, I, I think I'm 44, and I think the 79 FA Cup final is, is, was, was my highlight as an Arsenal fan. But what came next kind of baffles, I think, anyone connected with the club. And I'll tell you the most incisive quote um, that I got for this book is from Willie Young. Can you, you know, you Willie. maybe wouldn't think of it. Willie's a bit of a thinker, he's busy in his in his kennels and his cattery <laughs> near Nottingham. And he said, the thing is with any Arsenal team is they get a successful side and then for some reason they are kind of undercut by conservatism and, and cautiousness and they take down that team and they start off with a blank canvas. There's never a seamless transition from one generation to another. And I think you, you, know, you saw that in, in 79 when Terry Neal said... Um, you know, there's no value in the transfer market. You know, Liam Brady, Frank Stable says, well, Liverpool saw the value in it, and they went on one stuff. Well, 79 was the ultimate full store where it could have gone on to be much better than just that glorious, you know, Saturday afternoon in May. And I have to say that when I was watching the Chelsea game yesterday, I did think to myself that I was so optimistic this summer that Arsenal were going to change tactics and change their set out for the players and they haven't done that so at the moment I would say certainly this season I don't see there being progression from the cup final but as I said a few moments ago there does need to be a tactical rethink at the club 
almost Wenger to be line managed, shock horror, and actually told, you know, you need you need to do this, you need to do this. I don't think a couple of defensive tweaks or without a couple of defensive tweaks, we're not going to progress any further. And I'm hoping that in January in the next summer that's addressed. I think every Arsenal fan does hope that. Okay. Um, optimism, gentlemen, do you think this could be a springboard? That We've had tough fixtures at the start of this season mm-hmm. and we've only been beaten once and will come good? Mm, no, not really. Um, okay. If it was ten years ago, then, then maybe. But, I, I mean, the FA Cup, it's... It's the same as the League, league Cup. It, it's kind of pointless for, for most of the teams that take part in the competition. I mean, this is why... Well, look at us in the FA Cup final. We had our reserve goalkeeper, who nearly cost the entire game, well, the entire competition for us, by venturing out his penalty area in the last minutes. Um, you, people don't really care about the FA Cup anymore. I mean, um, OK, we had a very, very difficult run to get there, and that made me think that the team's got a bit of a spine, but as discussed earlier, we haven't. But um, I, I don't think the FA Cup means that much anymore. Um, I mean, we played whole City in the final. I mean, if we're playing Liverpool as, as, or Everton as we did earlier on in the competition, who rested a lot of their players, we played them in the final, and we were playing against Suarez and Sturridge up front. Oh, if we won three to after extra time, that I'd have that on DVD. I'd have it tattooed on my brain. But um, now the, the, the FA Cup, uh, I don't think it means that much to anyone. And it, it's we won a competition that the players didn't really care that much about. The opposition, uh, aside from Hull City in the final itself, really cared about. So no full storm for me. Uh, I disagree with the FA Cup not meaning anything. I think the FA Cup's always meant something to me. And it certainly did on that day. And it certainly meant something to the players. You know, I saw them celebrating afterwards. And it had been a long time since we'd won anything. So to get that winning mentality back, you know, what it was, it was, it, it was, I, I think it, it all being well, it will be a start, you know, uh, a start of a, a, a new season. That's what it felt like, like to me when I was standing there in front of the stadium and they were celebrating. Since again. Okay. So outside the stadium after, you know, the parade and all the players were there and you could tell it meant a lot to them. It meant a lot to the fans and for the morale of the club. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had my hands on the FA Cup before when we won the double. And uh, you know what? The, the, you hold the league trophy, the premiership trophy. It's big and flash and blah, 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 blah. Mm. You hold the FA Cup and you get a tingle up and down the back of your spine because it is the oldest club competition, cup competition in the world. It's, it's just, you know, it's what dreams are. It, it, for me, it is a, there's a romance to it that the other stuff doesn't have. Whether we can now move on and actually challenge for bigger and better things um, is essentially down to Arsene Wenger, I think. Um, as we've talked about the whole podcast, having a plan B and C and changing, changing things around a bit, or, alas, if not that, then a new manager. And a drive right through the club saying that fourth place isn't good enough. It's not, not good, good enough. enough. And I think that if you're at Wembley at May, in May, you know, that day showed everybody that there's far more to life than just finishing fourth in the Premier League. I've never celebrated Arsenal winning anything as much and I was so happy for, you know, weeks after that. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think in the summer, you know, they were looking at Cavalio pretty closely. They, they, they obviously flirted with the idea of Kadira as well. They were thinking in the right direction. I'm hoping that uh, they actually take some positive action over that January and next summer. My one worry is, though, that unfortunately this season as well we've been doing it, and we did it against Hull in the final, 
you know, lest we forget we were 2 nil down after eight minutes, yeah. shitting our pants, thinking this cannot be happening. And how many times have we seen Arsenal, game after game, Glory against Tottenham, we're one nil down against mm. Tottenham, having to, you know, set, standing there praying, going, I'll settle for a draw, God, I'll yeah. settle for a draw. Yeah. That's not, you know, that's so far away from Thierry Henry and Dennis Bergkamp and Ian Wright, who just went out there, and Tony Adams, and mm. it's totally different mentally. And this is the thing, Wenger goes on about the mental strength and the good spirit in the club. Um, there is not enough mental strength and good spirit in the club. Because if there was, we would be fucking steaming teams and going out there and having it, you know. And we're not. We're we're just. I think probably it's a culture of overpaid, um, yep. uh, and overpaid and over here. And Wenger is very very loyal to his players. And even you know Vieira said it's probably fault. And if you look yeah. at our captain this year, Arteta, you know he's he's probably seen better days. He's injury prone, just like the captain last year. <laughs> it's like. You know, it's it's happening, happening well, again. He's so obviously not the captain as well for me. I mean, it's mm. like you know, the BFG is there, just waiting for an arm. Yeah, of course he is. Um, yeah. uh, talking of BFGs, go on, maybe Steve. now's a good time to share with everyone. I bumped into the BFG a couple of days ago outside Cafe Nero in Hampstead High Street. I was actually sitting with, dare I say, a couple of Tottenham fans. Uh, oh, they were elderly. <laughs> they were elderly, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no, they're 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 actually quite nice people. I see in Hampstead a lot. And who's walking down with his hoodie on? He's got his hoodie. He's trying to hide. He's walking down the road, trying not to look like Per Mertesacker. Even though he's six foot five <laughs> inches tall. <laughs> I know, it was quite funny. So I turned around, I went, oh God, I've got to get up and say hello. So I went up and, and said hello, and I went and shook it by the hand, said, I was there last night. It was the day after Galatasaray. I said, I was there last night. I said, well played, you know, and thanks for, thanks for coming out and, and always clapping the fans, you know. And he, he, he was, as anyone would be, if someone comes up to you, you don't know and talks to you. We always think, oh, well, he knows me because I know him. But it's, <laughs> so it doesn't work that way, obviously. So he was a bit sort of standoffish. And I, and I spoke to him a bit in German as well, because I do speak German. And uh, um, and uh, he, I think he was a bit thrown by that. And, uh, <laughs> but he just said, oh, thank you and hello. And it was nice and pleasant and friendly and then went on his way. And, I, but, and then the two Tottenham fans started to started shouting at him yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean they, these are people in their in their 70s <laughs> lovely people they don't not very dignified <laughs> no not very dignified 70 year old Tottenham fans going I hope you never win again or something like that <laughs> bloody hell yeah but um, and then he walked off down the road and they kept looking at him where he was going and I said, no, don't, don't. And he kept looking back. And mm. I thought, no, don't keep looking at him. Because <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so we freaked Per Mertesacker out. No, it wasn't quite like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, he seemed pretty friendly and, and okay. And uh, um, he's got to be the captain of Arsenal, I think. You know, he's, got the, he's got that passion. And he wants, you can tell, he wants the club to do things. Oh, look, even when Arteta leaves the team out, it's Mertesacker who marches the 11 players to the centre circle, stands in the right line and claps all four corners yeah. of the ground. Arteta doesn't even know that there are four corners in the ground. Yeah. OK, well, I mean, uh, firstly, we'd better mention um, a special offer for John's book before we discuss it more, which uh, will be on the, um, the website piece that uh, trails this very podcast. Um... A special deal for podcast listeners? Uh... That's right, a special deal for podcast listeners. So it retails at eighteen ninety nine, but for podcast listeners, you can get it for £15, including postage and packaging. If you either email the link that Kev will put on the site on Thursday, or if you phone and use your credit card, 
to the uh, suppliers. Neither of which I can remember off the top of my head. No, it'll but be, it will uh, be on the website. All details there. Yeah. Um, now I've actually had a quick look at the book. I'm yeah. very busy, not had time to read it. The other thing is I had a PDF of it. I do prefer getting the thing in my hand and reading, I must confess. Three days till then, sadly. Okay. I, I can't wait to see it either. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually, I mean, although it is 14 Red Letter Days, it's based around supposedly particular yeah. events. It's more really passages of time. Yeah. And going through the book, it is a history of Arsenal, really. Yeah. Uh, it does all link up, you know. Um, yeah. And, um, I mean... Which part did you most enjoy writing about? I most enjoyed writing probably about the 70s, actually, because it's not an area that I'd really looked at in any great depth before. I mean, you're right, there's, you know, any football club's history is come, come down to thousands of tiny turning points and all this sort of thing. This book's about 14 kind of non-negotiable moments, like Peter Story's penalty at Hillsborough in 71, like the 1930. Uh, FA Cup final, turning points where Arsenal's history kind of turned on its head at that moment. But I enjoyed looking at the 70s most of all because I think Arsenal have come out of the 60s where they'd won nothing um, and, and I think by the end of the 60s you had, first of all you had Dave Sexton very much underrated in terms of the, what he put into place for the team in terms of the marking and the, 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 the relentless coaching of the defence which proved to be the cornerstone of, of, of the double team and obviously the cornerstone of any Arsenal team is the defence. But um, I think it's, it's, it's such a roller coaster decade that kind of sums up Arsenal perfectly in that they started off the decade by winning the double. Um, they, you know, Bertie Mee promised to build a team that would dominate the 70s. They then bought their branded player, Alan Ball. Arsenal have always bought or when Arsenal have bought these kind of branded players who've done well elsewhere, they never seem to do as well at Arsenal as they did elsewhere. So they bought Alan Ball. Alan Ball himself told me I wasn't the right signing. He said they should have bought a couple of £100,000 players to, uh, to get more pace in the team. They should have told Kennedy and Eddie Kelly to stay off the pies and the beer. And actually Arsenal could have, could have been there. But obviously you've got Don Howe leaving as well. Mm. And then they stripped the club apart. The, you know, the, the, the double team left. Um, Bertie Mee left and then you have the new breed of uh, the London Irish coming through which takes Arsenal to winning the FA Cup in 79 oh. and then just as you think they're going to dominate again the team gets stripped and so this pattern begins again and again and you see it right through Arsenal's well certainly since the 30s Arsenal's history and they, 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 they have a quick blaze of glory under one manager and then it stops. They never seem to be able, they haven't since the 30s, retained the league title, for instance. And that, you, that pattern you see again and again through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and even, you know, obviously under Wenger as well. Well, I think we, we, we could say that we've had a pretty good run from 1989 with George Graham and then Arsene Wenger. You know, from 1989 to 2005, I was thinking yeah. about this with the Chelsea game yesterday, because Chelsea are now, I hate to say it, pride of London whether we like it or not. Sorry, they are, they, look, you know, if they, if the they be, win the best the league, team in London is another way of the Champions League. I'm sorry to remind us all about that. Yeah. I know people are itching and scratching and, and pulling faces, but the reality is they are enjoying um, an era here. Right? Mm. And we had an era, we enjoyed, we dominated Chelsea from 89, 89 to 2005. I remember laughing at them from the North Bank, you know, yeah. um, 
I can't remember the name of the player. He was having a mare, and we beat him three one. And we 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 beat them for fun then. Mm. You know, yeah. it, it swings and roundabouts. You know, we had a good run, uh, yeah. and now they're having a run. There are eras. This will change again, um, but you know, at the moment, um, I, 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 you've got to say. I mean, we're lucky we've enjoyed probably the best era since the 30s in Arsenal's um, lifespan. And I, I mean, I was there in the 79 final. I went through the whole, uh, whole of the 70s. I remember going to the, the, you know, one of the losing receptions uh, and meeting Liam Brady, and he was really pissed off mm. because, well, money was pissed off even when he wins things. But, but um, and, uh, and, you know, and. Oh, that whole the Willie Young era, the whole you know that you know, I remember Jeff Blockley. You know we've always oh, had crap players, yeah. and we've always had crapness in the, in the team. You know, um, well there, there there will be ups and downs. Yeah, there will be. And, yeah. uh, but this but this current crapness is far better than say sixties crapness. Oh yeah, this is good. Crapness. Or mid seventies crapness, yeah. Yeah. or even mid nineties crapness. When do we have mid seventies? We have Brady. You know we had we. I remember I remember a game where Brady. I think it was one of Brady's first games and. Pat Rice was still hobbling around on his last legs, um, and I think Armstrong. I think Armstrong had left by then. But there was that that a couple of the double winning side left, and then these new Irish coming mm. in, and there was this. I mean, uh, we were losing at home to Burnley, and it was all a bit um, hodgepodge. Um, we're, this is a lot better now than that. What we have, and this is something we can build on. You know? yeah, we're only absolutely. one or two short of really yeah. challenging, yeah. but. That is the essential, whereas, as you said earlier. Whereas in the mid seventies, I mean, Arsenal narrowly avoided relegation two mm-hmm. seasons on the trot. Yeah. So this is this is a different kind of uh, this is kind of modern, uh, um, kind of well, we have been in a modern kind of limbo, if you like. In the, oh, it's just fourth place. It's kind of like a purgatorial existence. It's a high class problem, exactly, think, yeah. but yeah. only because of what we've been used to under Wenger before. Mm. That's the saddest thing about football in the 21st century. I mean, there's no difference yeah. between 5th and 17th, really. You yeah. know, unless you're in the top four, you're not one of the fashionable kids. And the bottom three kids do go out the division. Yeah. But, I mean, well, look at Everton. I mean, every year they finish either 5th or 17th. I mean, yeah. they did that under Moyes. And based on the, the way they're playing this season, they're going to do it under Martinez. Oh, no, you know what? Because we've enjoyed... Under Gray, lest, lest we forget, George Graham won a couple as well. And wow, mm. what, you know. And George, he was great. And he laid the foundation for Wenger as well. Because, of course, that defence that Wenger inherited... You know that's why Wenger won so much early on in his career with Arsenal. Um, now he's not really managed to replicate the the Tony Adams, Martin Keown, Stevie Bold thing. Mm-hmm. And let Dixon win to Berman and Seaman. I mean, look at that back four and what we've got now. Oh God! Yeah. Um, you know the goalkeeper. Forget it. You know. I mean, I think we do need a we need a, a more uh, sensible goalkeeper as well. And, well, my understanding was we were in the market for Hugo Lloris. He was on his way to London, oh. but he wasn't going to speak to that North London club. And, and Wenger bottled out. I mean, he only joined Spurs for about eight million pounds, I think it was. Well, he's a great goalkeeper, and and you know, uh, if we had him now, I mean, you know, you look at sh- the Schmeichels in the past and the Siemens. You know, they were worth between ten and twenty points a season or something. You know, with those, with, if you've got that good goalkeeper behind you, and the back four used to say about Seaman, just the fact he was there made them feel, you know, comfortable and strong. Chesney is not doing that, is he? And Aspina looks uh, looked very good against Galatasaray. He looked very short. Very short. He was really yes. tiny. Yeah, I'd like to take a penalty against him. God, you, you could chip him <laughs> from a penalty. <laughs> <laughs> but he wasn't even on the bench for Chelsea. There was Martinez. Yeah, I've no so idea. What to him? Uh, maybe he just did uh, have a little knock or something. We we yeah. haven't read about. I'm not yeah. sure. 
Um, anyway, so uh, just to um, confirm, John's book is out in three days' time, which Thursday. is Thursday That's this right. week. Yeah, available Amazon, all good bookshops everywhere. All the usual. All sources. the usual outlets. Yeah. Okay, and uh, I look forward to reading it properly as opposed to <laughs> off a computer screen in, uh, in about ninety minutes, which is what I tried to do this afternoon. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we're almost done, but before we wrap up, a word about the current issue of the Guna. Um, so that's from my good self. Danny Welbeck is the cover star, and within there are excellent articles on various subjects, including Welbeck himself, Mazat Ozil. Uh, there's an interview with author Alex Finn. Uh, the conclusion of a question and answer with Perry Groves, as well as articles on the transfer window system, the team's Champions League prospects why a top four position is going to become harder to achieve and the implications of Spurs finally moving to a new stadium and much much more it will be on sale outside the stadium for £2.50 at the next home game against Hull and can also be bought online from the Guna shop section of onlineguna.com that's the plug over as ever, the usual reminder that if you want to email us about anything related to the podcast, our address is gunapodcast at gmail.com, or you can now tweet us at the newly created Twitter account at gunapodcast. And with that, it is goodbye from David. Good evening. Mustafa. Auf Wiedersehen. And John. Oh, goodbye. We will be back at the beginning of November with our next offering, and at this point I can't say for certain who will be in the host chair simply hope you've enjoyed this month's uh, podcast. For now though, this is your host Kevin Witcher saying goodbye and thanks for listening. la di da di da la di da di dee All good friends and jolly good company Wahey!